Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters one through three. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome today for our study of David and the Psalms. Today we're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3, along with Psalm number 40. Now, let's remember where we were. We were in Ruth chapter 4, and the women of the neighborhood gave Ruth's baby a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we know that Ruth's baby is going to be in the line of King David, therefore in the line of the royal Messiah who was to come. The Hebrews were very big on their genealogies, keeping records. These are the descendants of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Ruth. And this is Salmon, Boaz, Obed. This is Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel. There's Ruth and baby Obed. And so we know that Elimelech and Naomi were married. Elimelech died. They had two sons, Milan and Chilion. Ruth married the oldest son, Milan, but he died. So then Ruth married Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth had Obed. Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David. So that's our family line so far. Obed of Jesse and Jesse of David. And at Christmas time, sometimes we make a Jesse tree and we put the little ornaments and we're waiting for the birth of Messiah, right? Because it says in Isaiah 11 that a root shall spring from the stump of Jesse. So this is the stump of Jesse, the Jesse tree from which will spring. I like these icons of the Jesse tree. There's Virgin Mary and baby Jesus. They're coming from this line. Jesse's lying down at the bottom of the tree. Here's another one. Jesse is lying at the bottom of the tree. There's Mary in the middle, and I want to zoom in and show you that with Mary, are five very important women. Five very important women. Important enough in a patriarchal society to be listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ by Matthew. Five very important women. The final one being Mary. Now, Ruth is one of these five women named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ruth, who we just studied. The first one mentioned is Tamar. Do you remember Tamar from our Genesis study? Just to refresh you, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Ah, Lion of Judah, this is the line we're talking about. She was married to his firstborn son, Ur, and when Ur died, then Judah gave Tamar her second son, Onan. Do you remember that? Because of the Leverite marriage laws in Deuteronomy 25, which we just studied with Ruth. The surviving brother, remember the next of kin, could perform what the Jews called the halitzah, the taking off of the sandal. I will redeem the widow. When Jesus Christ came, what did John say? It's not me. I'm not the bridegroom. John said, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me, he's going to baptize with fire. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal strap. He's not the redeemer. He's not the kinsman redeemer. John was not. Jesus is. Now, Tamar knew those Leverite marriage laws, just like Ruth did and Naomi did. 
And when Ur died, Judah gave Tamar his second son, Onan. Now, the Lord struck Onan dead instantly for intentionally spilling his seed. It's called onanism. He did not go inside Tamar like he was supposed to and help her conceive a son. And so God struck him dead. Judah did not give Tamar to his third son, Shelah, because Judah was afraid that Tamar would kill him too. She's killed the first two sons in his mind. She's not, he's not giving her Shelah. So he's going against the Leverite marriage laws in Deuteronomy 25. Judah is the fourth son of Leah, son of Jacob of the 12 tribes. Tamar covers herself up. She puts a veil and she knows Judah won't recognize her. And she puts herself in the roadway because she knows Judah will be passing by here because he's going to shear the sheep. And she knows what men do after they shear the sheep. It's kind of like the threshing room floor. Here comes Tipsy Judah home from sheep shearing. See the sheep in the background? She's sitting in the roadside with a veil over her face. And Judah would like to hire veiled Tamar. And he says, I will, uh, he, he takes off his signet ring, his rod, and his cord. And the transaction is completed. Judah lays with Tamar, the father of her husband and her second husband. And he accidentally left behind three things when he finished his business transaction in his mind with her. For Tamar, it was much more because she was legally by Torah following the Levite marriage laws and perpetuating the house of Judah, her husband's house, so that they did not become extinct. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps Messiah was going to come from them. Because you'll remember before Jacob died, the father of Judah, when he blessed Judah, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruling staff from between his feet until it comes to whom it belongs. This is a very important line. It can't become extinct. Tamar had evidence of Judah's proposition, his signet ring, his cord, his staff. And when Judah heard that Tamar was pregnant, he ordered her to be burnt at the stake. And she sent the identifying items back to Judah, urging him to recognize that her child's father is the owner of these three items, Judah's signet ring, Judah's cord, and Judah's staff. And Tamar is called the seeker of justice. And Judah himself said, she is more righteous than I am. She has followed Torah. She has followed the Levite marriage laws. Tamar was righteous because she followed laws of the Torah for the Levite marriage. And for her righteous stand, God blessed her and gave her not just one son, but twin sons, Perez and Zerah. And remember when Perez punched his little hand through first and they quick tied a red cord on it to show that he was the firstborn? She had twins that day, Perez and Zerah. And Perez, with the red cord, was the firstborn. And all the people, this is in Ruth, all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore unto Judah. These two women have something in common, Ruth and Tamar. They both followed the Levite marriage laws of Torah. Now, these are the descendants of Perez. Perez was from the father of Hezron, Hezra of Ram, Ram of Amadab, Amadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of David, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. And Ruth is only one of those five women named in the gene genealogy of Jesus. Another one I want to tell you about is Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. 
is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She would always put out a red cord, Joshua and his men. He has sent out two young men on a reconnaissance, on a spy mission. And they enter the city of Jericho and they will lodge in the home of a harlot, a prostitute, a house of prostitution. The owner's name is Rahab. She's a Canaanite woman. She lives in Jericho, but she is harboring for safety Joshua's men. Rahab the harlot was the mother of someone we now know. Guess whose mama she is? is. She is the mother of Boaz. Rahab the harlot. You're all like, we had no idea. Perhaps why Boaz had mercy on a Moabite woman. His mother's a Canaanite and she's a harlot and she's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The next one, Ruth, we studied and she is the sacrificial servant. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, so will I live. Your people, Naomi, will be my people and your God, Naomi, will be my God too. Ruth is a foreign Moabite, a widow, an immigrant, a wife to Boaz, a mother, a grandmother, a great-grandmother to the future King David of Israel and in the royal line of Messiah. Very unlikely women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The next one is Bathsheba. We'll get to know her this year. Matthew won't call her Bathsheba. He'll just call her the wife of Uriah. But she is Bathsheba. We know in 2 Samuel, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the queen mother of King Solomon, the one David will see bathing on the rooftop. We'll get to her. And the fifth woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, another very, very unlikely woman woman because virgins don't have babies. And it's Mary, the young Jewish virgin, 12 or 13 years old. Mary, the young Jewish virgin, the immaculate conception occurring within another barren woman. Her mother is named Anna, which is a derivative of Hannah. Anna, Mary's mom, is named after Hannah. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Whom she is named after is an incredible antitype of Hannah and Samuel. Remember, antitype is greater than the type. So Anna and Mary are going to be an antitype of Hannah and Samuel. I'll show you. Anna is like Hannah. Anna prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a baby. She was getting very, very, very old and infertile. Unlike Hannah, who prayed for a son, Hannah wanted a boy, I want a boy, I want a son, I want a son, I want a son, I want a son. Anna prayed for either a son or a daughter. She didn't care, boy or girl. Both women promised God that they would surrender their children back to his service. I promise God. That's the bargain. I promise God. I promise God. If you gave me a baby, I'll give it back. Now, this is in our oral tradition about Anna. And a lot of it, you can see it in the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, second century Syrian document. But I'll tell you what it says. It says that old and childless couple named Joachim and Anna were barren and very old, and they wanted a baby so mad. And Joachim went out to pray one more time. And Joachim called to mind the patriarch Abraham. And in the last day, God gave him a son, Isaac. And Joachim was exceedingly grieved and did not come into the presence of his wife, but he retired to the desert. There he pitched his tent and fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. This is in the Proto-Evangelium of James, all this that I'm saying now. An angel of the Lord went down to him saying, Joachim, Joachim, the Lord God hath heard thy prayer. Go down hence, for behold, thy wife Anna shall conceive. 
Wow, he can't wait to run back and tell Anna what the Lord has spoken to him. In the meantime, while he's gone that 40 days, Anna herself says, I'm going to try to pray to the Lord one more time. And this is what Proto-Evangelium of James says about her. Anna mourned and lamented, saying, I shall bewail my childlessness. And gazing toward the heaven, she saw a sparrow's nest and a laurel. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by and said to her, Anna, Anna, the Lord God hath heard thy prayer, and thou shalt conceive and shall bring forth and thy seed shall be spoken of in all the world. And Anna said, as the Lord my God lives, if I beget either male or female, I will bring it as a gift to the Lord my God, and it shall minister to him in holy things all the days of its life. Mm. They can't wait to tell each other. They run back after the 40 days and they this holy embrace. This is in Assisi, in the chapel there, painted by Giusato. A singular act of God's grace that night in their wedding bed, there is something called an immaculate conception. It is absolutely miraculous. It's in a single act of God's grace. We didn't even know this word, you guys. We didn't even know this phrase, immaculate conception, until 1858 when St. Bernadette Subaru was in Lourdes praying and the virgin mother said to her, I am the immaculate conception. Go tell the bishop. What is it again? You can imagine her going all the way to the bishop. Immaculate conception, immaculate conception, immaculate conception. She said she's immaculate conception. We didn't know that word. She didn't know that word. She's a girl who has very poor grades in school. She's a nobody, peasant girl in Lourdes, France. And Mary says, tell the bishop my title, I am the Immaculate Conception. It'll be later that the Pope writes that document. But in that singular act of God's grace, Joachim and Anne are pregnant and they give birth to a baby and it is an immaculate conception. That baby is born with no stain of original sin. And that baby is a girl. Because Anna said, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl, I'll take either and I'll give him back to the Lord, I promise, Lord. I'll make a vow like Hannah did. I'm sure she's thinking of her Hannah who she's named after in the Old Testament. Joachim and Anna did not forget Anna's promise to God. So around age three, they took Mary to the temple. They loved her so, so much. They prayed that little Mary would go for it. Anybody have a three-year-old granddaughter? You're gonna go give her to an old man in a temple and walk away, is she gonna go for it? They were worried, they prayed. They had made this vow to the Lord. Scripture and Jewish tradition record that there were commissioned virgins associated with the Jerusalem temple. The German Augustinian nun, Venerable Anne Catherine Emmerich, writes of it. She's the one who inspired Mel Gibson. All, all her things in The Passion, the movie he made, he was reading Catherine Anne Emmerich. She received the stigmata in 1832, Catherine Anne Emmerich, and she suffered and lived her last days on Eucharist and water only. She had the stigmata, and she wrote this. The virgins employed themselves at the temple. The virgins employed themselves with embroidery and other forms of decoration of carpets and vestments and also the cleaning of the vestments and the vessels used in the temple. They had little cells from which they could see into the temple and here they prayed and meditated and these maid when they were grown up, these maidens, they were given away in marriage. Hmm, so Mary's one of these little three-year-old virgins at the temple serving the Lord. Anna had given her to the temple. Their parents in dedicating them to the temple, these little virgins had offered them entirely to God and the devout and more spiritual Israelites had for a long time had a secret presentiment that the marriage of one of these virgins would one day contribute to the coming of the promised Messiah. Why? They think one of these little virgin girls at the temple is going to give birth to the Messiah. Why? Because in Isaiah 7, it said it will be from a virgin. A virgin will give birth. Well, that doesn't happen every day. Hmm. Interesting. So when she's three years old, Anna and Joachim take little Mary to the temple. 
and look at some of these paintings. The time had come. The time had come. Anna and Joachim took Mary to the temple of the Lord. This little three-year-old girl. The high priest received Mary and kissed her and blessed her, saying, The Lord has magnified your name in all generations. Remember, the high priest of Israel has a prophetic voice. That sounds like a line from the Magnificat. The Lord has magnified your name in all generations. In you on the last of days, the Lord will manifest his redemption to the sons of Israel. And he set her down upon the third step of the altar. Three, the divine number. And the Lord God sent grace upon her. And Mary danced with her feet and all the house of Israel loved the little girl. Aren't these paintings wonderful? Look at Mary going up the stairs into the house of the Lord. Her heart was captivated from the temple of the Lord. There's a tradition that Mary was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Someone had to dust it. Someone had to clean it. Guess what? The ark wasn't there. It's a slab of marble laying on the floor. The ark is missing, remember, at Mary's time? There's the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest place on the face of the earth is where the true presence of God is in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant. But guess what? The ark's missing. No ark. There's no ark there at the time of Mary. There was no true presence of God because there was no ark. Jeremiah had hid the ark in 2 Maccabees 2. We're told that the place where the ark is hidden shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. Then the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. Now Mary's in there in the Holy of Holies. That time is now. Little Mary is the new ark of a new covenant. But there's no contents in her womb yet, in her tabernacle, in her container, in her ark, right? Because she's a three-year-old little girl. But she loves to be in the Holy of Holies. Because guess what? The ark belongs in the Holy of Holies. Little Mary was the ark of the new covenant. And the ark of God was back in the temple again. But there were no contents inside the ark yet. Mary was at home in the temple, in the ark. The ark was back. Now, Anna would have known Hannah's song very, very well, especially as a barren woman, especially a woman named after her. Hannah, Anna, Mary. And Anna would have taught it to her own daughter, Mary, the song of Hannah. And Mary, as a little three-year-old, is very much like a little three-year-old Samuel boy running into Eli and the temple of the Lord in Shiloh because this one hadn't been built yet. But Mary was very comfortable. This same Mary at age 12 would be visited by an angel and the content of the ark would be fulfilled. And Mary would be with child, a virgin with child. That doesn't happen every day. And that child would be from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. And those were the good years when they had him at home in Nazareth. And when Jesus was 12 years old and he gets lost, where does he run? To the temple. Didn't you know, Mom and Dad, you'd find me here at the true presence of God? He's the contents of her ark. Of course he'd be in the temple. Just like you were, Mom, when you were three. Didn't you know? Duh, Mom. Was it lost? Didn't you know where I'd be? The place you loved. So there are five women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Mary. And Matthew tells us that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from the deportation, the David to the deportation of Babylon, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Why does Matthew do that? Because the Hebrew geometria, the, the value of each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a number, and David's name adds up to 14. 14, 14, 14. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Of the men listed in Matthew's genealogy, guess what number David is? 14. 14, 14, 14. Matthew is screaming, David, David, David. And he starts out his genealogy saying, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So, Samuel. We're we're studying Samuel today, and Samuel plays a very key role in the transition from the people of the biblical judges, we talked about we're in the time of the judges, to the institution of a kingdom under King Saul. And again, in the transition from King Saul to King David, Samuel is going to be venerated by Jews, by Christians, and by Muslims. We all claim him as one of our prophets. Samuel was a miracle child. His name means God heard, or God has heard my prayer. Hannah prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and God heard and gave her a supernatural conception, Samuel. Samuel is one of only eight people in the entire Bible who gets his name called twice, like Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Simon, Simon. Jesus calls out to his father, my God, my God, and Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Samuel is one of those eight. Samuel, Samuel. The book of Judges tells us about 12 judges, but first Samuel introduces two more. Eli, the high priest, is a judge of Israel, and Samuel is the final judge of Israel. Why is he last? Because after Samuel, Israel will be led by kings. God gave them kings until Samuel, or gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, we're told in Acts 13. Samuel will anoint the first two kings of Israel when the people are going to clamor to be like the other nations. God will direct Samuel to anoint Saul. He's who the people want. He's tall and handsome and ruddy. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. But that wasn't the right one. Then God will ask Samuel to anoint a young shepherd boy to replace Saul a shepherd boy named David. Why can Samuel anoint what gives him the authority? There were no kings yet, but Samuel is a priest and a prophet, and he will anoint Israel's first two kings, he who listens to God and obeys. We talked about that last week. To hear and obey, Samuel will listen, God heard, and and his mother conceived, but now Samuel will hear God's word and obey as well. We're told in Acts 3, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up, and you shall listen to him and do whatever he tells you. The fulfillment of that is Deuteronomy 18, 18. Jesus is that prophet, that new Moses. It goes on to say, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came afterwards also proclaimed these days. St. Peter gave that impassioned speech after he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Samuel was the first of the prophets, and a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, a mouthpiece for God. Now, all of you sitting here, if you've been baptized, you are a prophet. You are a mouthpiece for God by virtue of your baptism into Jesus Christ. It's in the catechism. Uh, it's in the catechism. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office. Jesus is all three. He's a priest, prophet, and a king. 
And we are told that Christ, the high priest and unique mediator, has made the church a kingdom of priests for God and Father. The whole community of believers is priestly. You have a ministerial priesthood, too. You're not just a prophet. You're also a priest. You minister to your family. You minister to people you work with. You have a ministry. You minister, you're in a ministerial priesthood. The whole community of believers is priestly. The faithful exercise their baptismal priesthood through the participation, each according to his own vocation. And in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king through the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, the faithful are consecrated to be a holy priesthood of people set apart. That's us now. And Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. And the whole people of God participate in these three offices and bear the responsibility for mission and service that flow from them. So you're a prophet in your family, like Samuel was. You're a priest and you're a king because you're a beloved son or daughter of God. You are in a royal line. You are in his image and his likeness, male and female, he created them. You are a priest, a prophet, and king by virtue of your baptism. Now let's talk about Samuel as a priest. His ministry will begin today when he's going to serve Eli. And then Samuel will make sacrifices on behalf of the people. He'll be an intercessor, a go-between for God and the people. That's what a priest does. Samuel was also a Nazarite. From Numbers chapter 6, he's going to take that Nazarite vow. His mother will vow that he's a Nazarite. Like mighty Samson, the judge before him, who was also a supernatural conception and also dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. He would never take alcohol, he would never cut his hair, and he would never touch death. Samuel led the greatest Passovers. We're told in scriptures that hundreds and hundreds of years after Samuel's death, little King Josiah celebrated the Passover. And it is said that it was such a great affair. The author says it was the greatest Passover ever, well, ever since Samuel's day. So Samuel offered fabulous Passovers as a priest. Samuel is remembered for his prayers. The psalmist who penned Psalm 99 will rank Samuel up there with Moses and Aaron as one who called upon the name of the Lord. He is mentioned in Psalm 99. He lived in Ramah, and I want to show you the first arrow is Ramah. It is northern northern Israel, way up there by Tyre and Sidon. It's in the West Bank today. And then the second arrow is Shiloh. There's no temple in Jerusalem yet, so the Ark of the Covenant for over 350 years rested in Shiloh. And then the third arrow down is Jerusalem, where the temple will be eventually. Okay, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, those taken captive were assembled in Ramah before they were deported on to Babylon. And Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 40, he says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. They're being taken to Babylon and they're resting there in Ramah, weeping, wailing, Rachel is the ancestress of three tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. We're talking about all of them lately. And she so desired children. She was also infertile, remember? And she considered herself dead. She said, I shall die if I can't have children, Jacob. Rachel died in childbirth with her second son, Benjamin, and she's buried in the West Bank. This is Rachel's tomb one of the most popular places for both Christians, Jews, and Muslims to visit. 
In the New Testament, Ramah is mentioned again in Matthew 2.18 because this is where the massacre of the innocents took place, right near Rachel's tomb. And again, she is wailing for her children who are no more because Herod is slaughtering them outside of Bethlehem, right by her grave. And you have to go by her grave because she died in childbirth. She doesn't get to be buried with the patriarchs. Remember, Jacob had to bury her on the road. This is where she's buried, right outside of Bethlehem. And you have to go past it to get to the highway that goes to Ramah. So at the time of the Babylon exile and again at the wailing of the innocents passing by Rachel's tomb going north to Ramah. That was part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters one through three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.